Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Some of these numbers worldwide still not great. Just a subtle, a subtle sign of stabilization in some key economies, some key countries. And we hope that continues, Tom. Great lineup of guests through this morning on Bloomberg Surveillance, as always. And we begin this morning with Troy Gajewski of Skybridge. Troy, always great to catch up with you. Howard Marks putting out a memo yesterday. Let me bring you a quote from that just to start this conversation off. The bottom line for me is that I'm not all troubled, at all troubled, saying markets may well be considerably lower sometime in the coming months. And we're buying today when we find good value. I don't find these statements inconsistent. Your response to that, Troy? Yeah, no, I think he's 100% right. I mean, you you can never time a bottom perfectly, right? And so I think the broader point there is that, you know, there are many asset classes that are pricing in apocalypse and many securities. Um, Yet at the same time, as you guys always note, you've seen unprecedented government stimulus, both at the fiscal level and more importantly, in our opinion, on the Fed balance sheet level and in terms of money supply growth. So, you know, it, it would be nice to sit back in a perfect world and say, hey, I'm going to time the perfect bottom in every security and every asset class. But the reality is, is that you have tremendous discounts now. You could take a little bit of mark-to-market pain as you're legging in, but that's the price you have to be willing to take or to pay in order to have, you know, extraordinary upside. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, groups like, Oak Tree have been so successful over time and that they're in a position to add capital and and monetize dislocations. Huge dislocations off the back of forced liquidation, an ugly phase at a drawdown a number of weeks ago. Many people have been taking advantage of those dislocations, particularly in high-grade credit. And a question I want to explore, beginning with you this morning, Troy, Mm -hmm. is what the recovery looks like in the lower quality segments of this market towards high yield across an EM. What are you looking at at the moment? Yeah, so I think that that's a million-dollar question, and I think you know the way this has always worked historically, and the way it appears to be working now, but just at a much more rapid pace, given you know the fact that the Fed response has been so much more muscular, and you know you have TALF two that's coming online, and, and the government stimulus is that you know when you go through a deep uh, downturn in markets. And markets are pricing in, you know, in some cases, Armageddon, in other cases, you know, severe recession, you know, the up in quality always starts to move first, right? Analysts always have more confidence when they're looking at, you know, a company with an unlevered balance sheet or you're looking, you know, at the top of the capital structure and commercial real estate or, or CLOs that, hey, you can run math six ways to Sunday, doomsday this to the cows come home, but there's still money, good securities. And so, yeah. you know, you've seen that <clears throat> rebound start, you know, it's slow and fitful. Um, and then what happens is as that liquidity starts to filter down and in, in some of the, the more you know, dire scenarios don't play out, um, you start to see lower parts of the capital structure start to catch up or lower quality. The thing that's interesting, though, about this is that you've already had a pretty significant rebound in high yield. Um, You know, that, you know, dollar prices are back up to about 85 cents in a dollar. So, you know, I wouldn't get carried away right now on specific high yield because, you know, so much of the potential upside's always been realized, already been realized. 
Troy, you've got a beautiful vision into the hedge fund business, and I know the media loves to trot out somebody who's up 142% in the last three days. It's all great and wonderful. What's the real story? How are alternative investments doing? Are they, as a general statement, surviving or creating alpha here? Yeah, so I think as a general statement, uh, that would be true. I mean, it's not like you know the hedge fund industry's had a great run. Um, by oh, really? stretch, but you, there are well, time you always joke around it. But but if you think of what's happened so far this year, you know, in the most part, capital has been protected. I think discretionary macro managers and systematic trend followers have done fairly well. You know, some of the bigger uh, multi PM shops, um, you know, like you guys reported on, like Citadel and Millennium, have done fine. The where there's acute pain um, has been more in the uh, credit and structured credit area. Uh, where they got caught up in the the margin calling that was hitting the REITs, and a lot of their assets were sold down, you know, in sympathy. And so that's where, you know, when we look at risk-reward versus fundamentals, we think there's the most upside there, and we also think there's the most upside in distressed corporate credit. But, again, you have to be selective, you know, preferably focus on good good company with good balance sheet. You know, no reason to get involved in energy or anything of that nature. But, you know, even hospitality names or, or you know, uh, Six Flags is a good example of a, of a company that's good, good balance sheet, low dollar yeah. prices. It, that franchise is very strong and will survive. Troy, I think it's interesting you're talking about margin calls and some of the mm-hmm. technical stress in markets. It appears that we've moved from a financial market crisis going forward to a real economic crisis, which is what we're looking at and trying to assess now. There's sort of a knee-jerk buy-the-dip mentality because it's worked in the past. What's the risk that it's not going to work the same way this time as people look into the abyss of a potential downturn economically that rivals what we saw in 1930 in the 1930s? Yeah, no, no, it's a great question, Lisa, and I think you hit the nail on the head with your W analysis. I mean, I think that is arguably the biggest risk or that, you know, no, the dreams of a V-shaped recovery went out the window, you know, four to six weeks ago. No, no market participants thinks that's going to happen, but maybe the U tends to have, you know, a much, much uh, longer bottom, right? Um, and so, I, and the other thing I'd say is no one is really – recklessly buying dips, right? Uh, you know, people are trying to be very careful and calculated on, again, like the, we talked about with uh, credit quality, like, okay, let's start with the higher higher top of the capital structure. You know, obviously in IG credit, you're getting Fed support directly, and then let's roll down. So no, no one's, you know, I think delusional enough to think that markets are going to rebound in a straight line, and, you know, we're going to have this you know, 30% or 20% annualized, keyword annualized economic contraction. And, and you know, mortgage delinquencies are going to go from 0.9% to 8%. And then suddenly all those people are going to start paying, you know, two weeks later. N- no one's doing that. People are trying to be very careful and selective. Um, but, but to your point, if, if things get materially worse in the economic level, like meaning we don't really bottom in Q2, which is the expectation now, we yeah. don't start to recover you know, in Q3 and Q4, um, and instead it's a, it's a much longer stretch or, or, or a false dawn with a W, then clearly, you know, that's the scenario where you could have more downside in markets. Um, but then again, against that, uh, and I know you saw, probably saw notes coming over, I mean, you think of what the Fed is doing yeah. from a liquidity standpoint. It's just, it's incredible. I mean, it's been on real Troy. It's unreal. They're expanding their balance sheet at almost 15 times the pace of QE3, 15 times. 
money supply growth has, is growing at an annualized rate of 78%, yep. while the banking system excess reserves have gone up by, you know, probably about $750 billion. That data series hasn't come out, but that's, you know, that's our estimate. So, you know, th- that is, that, in our humble opinion, is what's really put a floor under markets. Obviously, the fiscal stimulus is very critical. TALF 2 is very critical, an expansion of TALF 2 to include other assets like they did back in 08. You know, yeah. they, they gradually expanded it. That's very critical. Hey, Troy, always great to get your thoughts on a program. Send my best to the team at SkyBridge and to you and yours. Troy Gersky of SkyBridge Capital. Right now, to bring us up to date on the state of the state of New York, Kathy Hochul joins us, of course, the lieutenant governor of this state. Kathy, these are extraordinary times. It is a test for all politicians and a test of exhaustion. How are you getting to the weekend? What is the path on this Wednesday to get to a long weekend and to Easter? Well, for those of us who are on the front lines, there is no thought that this week is going to end. So I'm looking forward to Easter to celebrate uh, remotely with my family, at least virtually. And I want to wish everyone a happy Passover and happy Easter as we head into this week. But this is a week where there's tremendous temptation to uh, start hearing some little glimmers of hope and saying that people can become a little more complacent. You haven't seen grandma and grandpa in a while. You want to catch up with your siblings because these are wonderful celebrations. We have to make sure that people do not succumb to that temptation. And that is the warning that I cannot convey strongly enough that if we start going back to our old ways or even just taking a little more steps out to becoming a little less uh, you know, guarded in our behavior toward others, if we don't stay home, we could actually set ourselves back. And after all the sacrifice that New Yorkers and Americans have had to go through for the last three weeks, we do not want to go there. And that's a strong message. I want to just make sure that everyone hears these are wonderful holidays and we'll certainly have next year to celebrate, but let's make sure that everyone who can will be sitting at those tables with us next year because we took those preventative steps now and continued our social distancing. I will say I'm, I'm looking forward to my Zoom Passover Seder tonight. Uh, Lieutenant Governor, I'm wondering, everyone's uh, trying to figure out how quickly New York can restart its economy. Do you have any sense of the path for that and what the plan is to reopen? Before we can reopen, we have to have broad broadly uh, undertaken testing. And what we're doing now, and the governor announced this yesterday, is that we are working with our businesses to try to find ways to increase the capacity for rapid testing. There are possibilities to do testing in five minutes, 15 minutes, and get results back quickly. And only when we feel secure that we can have a workforce that is free of coronavirus because they've already contracted it and they have developed the antibodies and are not vulnerable themselves or that they would spread it to others. I think those are important scientific metrics that we're going to be focusing on as we I start to identify which industries can come back online. But again, this is a conversation we want to have because we are anxious to get this going again, but it is a little bit premature to start giving out dates, and it's certainly premature to know how that's going to look. All we do know is that we have to continue the distancing from each other, the social distancing, reduce density, but the increased testing will really be the link that tells us when we're able to test enough New Yorkers to start jump-starting our economy again. Kathy, premature to be thinking about many, many things at this point, I'm sure, given the crisis that's unfolding right before our eyes over the last few weeks. One thing we can discuss, though, that's not too premature to discuss is the help that you might need in the future. Kathy, what do you need from the federal level? What kind of assistance do you need from the government? We need money. 
this is something that the governor just yesterday wrote to our congressional delegation. He's spoken to the president. <sighs> when there is the next stimulus plan and there needs to be another one, they cannot overlook the fact that a place like New York City, the epicenter, has now taken a 10 to $15 billion hit to our budget. And we just wrapped up a budget a couple days ago, but it allows the governor to have flexibility to reopen if necessary based on either a decline or hopefully an increase in revenues. But we need financial assistance from the federal government. We also have been asking for them to invoke the Defense Production Act much earlier than has been even used at all in a wide-scale way to get us the personal protection equipment to ramp up testing kits, the testing supplies, as well as we've been saying for weeks and literally months, we need more ventilators to be produced in this country. I think this crisis is going to have a wholesale rethinking of where we get our life-saving products, our supplies, our medical supplies, our ventilators, and I think that's going to make us wonder, do we want to continue to be reliant on on other countries when we have the capacity, the know-how, and the ability to make those right here in New York? And I think that's going to be a conversation that will be had uh, sooner than later. Another thing that's not theoretical is the impact that the coronavirus and the shutdowns have had on the economy. And one area that you highlighted in a recent op-ed in The Hill was that women are hit hardest, you argue, by the impact of the coronavirus. Why do you say that? In two areas. One is that 76% of healthcare workers are female. That's staggering when you think about how we are honoring our frontline workers, the people are putting on uniforms and hopefully protective equipment going into their jobs, literally going into the heat of battle every day. The majority mm-hmm. of them, vast majority are women, and they've, many of them have children, children who otherwise would be occupied in school or being watched by grandparents. So there is literally right. a child care crisis associated with them. <clears throat> Secondly, two-thirds of America's minimum wage workers are women. These are the ones who worked in restaurants and had worked in hotels and had worked in housekeeping and done all this work that had to get done. And now they're either laid off or they're the ones vulnerable having to go into work every single day. Lieutenant Governor, you are more qualified than any politician in this country to talk about the cityness of this pandemic. You are out of Buffalo. You know the distance to Lockport, the distance to Batavia down the U.S., uh, rather down the New York State Thruway system as well. Explain to those in smaller cities, villages, and rural America why they need to support the big cities in this pandemic. Oh, absolutely. And I've been on radio and television nonstop saying, You know, think about when there's a snowstorm that paralyzes upstate New York, those utility trucks are coming up from Long Island and New York City to get our power back on. So let's just talk about something we all can relate to in upstate New York. They can relate to that. I represent the entire state, and I spend actually the majority of my time in New York City, so I I feel I'm adopted there as well. But what I've been saying to Western New Yorkers, uh, just like we root for one team up here football season, we are one state, and and I have said... The governor and I have said for sure, if there is any part of that state, upstate, downstate, that needs life-saving equipment, we will personally transport yeah. there ourselves. We had to reassure people, and there was some anxiety, some political people trying to make hay out of it, which I think is disgraceful. But, you know, we shut yeah, that down. Exactly. We said, you know, that, that's well, not happening. We are one state, period. That's the answer. Don't be a stranger. Lieutenant Governor Hochul from Buffalo and from New York State, thank you so much for joining Bloomberg Surveillance Worldwide. I think we should carry forward into the, uh, the chairman's comments 
uh, that we'll see tomorrow. And, of course, we'll uh, have a lot of details on that across all of the Bloomberg platforms. Stephen Roach is identified at Yale University with China. And, of course, his leadership at Morgan Stanley uh, on the China Watch for many years involving his wonderful book, The Next Asia, and other efforts as well. Before that, he had leadership in looking at what we do with our monetary and fiscal systems uh, within the United States. And maybe we can focus on that uh, today. Stephen Roach, I know you, John, Lisa, and me, we never imagined this expansion of the balance sheet. Back to Calculus One, is there a limit to where a balance sheet can go? No, there's no limit numerically in a world of electronic or fiat currencies. The question is, is there a limit uh, economically and um, what this ultimately means for um, uh, addressing the problems that are now afflicting the world, Tom? The underpinning of this, and we talked to William White about this yesterday. I thought, folks, the conversation was hugely valuable, was to go back to something Joe Stiglitz has talked about, which is the underpinning of this is the small G in economics, which is the growth rate. It can be the growth rate of Italy, the growth rate of the U.S. It can be the growth rate of New York City, for that matter. How do you dovetail, Steve Roach, what we're going through right now with the small G that's in all the equations? Well, look... um the monetary um, stimulus, the fiscal stimulus, you know, the, the two words we described to address these actions uh, uh, during the global financial crisis of 08 and 09 was big bazooka, uh, and they're effective in addressing uh, financial problems, but they're not effective in addressing uh, a pandemic. We know that, and uh, uh, Chairman Powell said it very clearly when he uh, gave his rare interview on the Today Show now uh, close to a couple of weeks ago when he said that, you know, the Fed's actions are aimed at sparking uh, post-COVID recovery, not in addressing the downside of um, uh, containment and uh, workers being told to stay at home. So we're deluding ourselves into thinking that these actions uh, are going to bring an end uh, to this crisis. The only thing that can bring an end to the crisis is containing the disease. We're trying to build a bridge to the other side here, Professor, on a number of levels and help companies get through an unprecedented economic shutdown. I'm just wondering from your perspective, Stephen, what more needs to be done on the fiscal side, both in terms of size and just calibration, the specific policies that you'd like to see in the coming weeks and months if we haven't seen them already? Well, you use the word, John, uh, calibration. I mean, I don't know quite what that means, but I would take that as... um, Uh, meaning that the fiscal actions need to be focused at uh, providing support for our public health infrastructure, which is woefully inadequate, the scientific research we need for antiviral medication and ultimately the the vaccine. Um, You know, I've I've argued that we should place as much emphasis on that uh, as we do to bridge loans to corporations uh, and even small and medium-sized businesses. Certainly, we've got to uh, put a floor under the economic carnage, but you know as well as I do that the longer the shutdown uh, exists, the more and more we're going to have to go back to the well uh, in dealing with these, these, these bridge loans. We've got to get the science and the public health infrastructure right before we can hope to do anything in terms of supporting economic recovery. 
Stephen Roach, Yale professor and former Morgan Stanley Asia chairman joining us right now. I'm wondering, Stephen, taking a look at what the roadmap will be to reopen the U.S. economy. A lot of people are looking to China. What are the initial signs you're seeing? A lot of people questioning uh, the sort of veracity of the numbers that we're getting out of China. Are you optimistic about what you've seen in terms of a bounce back from the shutdown uh, over there? Look, the, the, the Chinese template tells us some important things. It told us how to address the, uh, the disease, as did South Korea, and there, there are two different models. One is about uh, draconian lockdowns, China, and the other is about rigorous t- uh, testing and uh, uh, contact tracing in South Korea. Uh, and what they're telling us about you know, the reopening is that uh, it's possible to reopen the supply side, but it's very, very difficult to reopen the demand side, given the shock that's occurred to behavioral norms of disease-infected and fearful uh, uh, people, families, slash consumers. And so we've got to look very carefully at, at other countries in, in, in terms of their struggles uh, to uh, reopen their systems and uh, uh, go back to anything close to uh, normal. It's going to be very difficult to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. The immediacy of the health crisis the entire world is facing has uh, sort of overwhelmed some of the tensions that seem to be percolating and ongoing between the U.S. and China. And I'm wondering how that plays out at a time when there seems to be something of an information war with a lot of bickering going back and forth uh, with the U.S. and China as to the message, who's who's at blame and taking leadership globally in managing the health crisis. Yeah, look, that's a great point. I've written about that on, on the Bloomberg platform and, and elsewhere. Um, Finger-pointing in the blame game is going to get us nowhere if we really aspire for a collaboration, which is what we need to address a global problem. That's what a pandemic is. And, and you know, the Trump administration, you know, has backed off a little bit from naming this the Chinese virus or as uh, – Secretary of State Pompeo calls it the Wuhan virus, but, you know, we're, we continue to um, uh, uh, point fingers uh, at one another in uh, trying to assess culpability and blame, and that's just not the stuff of collaboration. We've got to put that aside and, uh, and really work together. Right. There's so much we can do together. Well, Steve, I'm in China Watch. Elizabeth Economy at CFR I thought was way, way out front on the challenges domestically that Mr. Xi has in China. Ming-Chi Pei of Claremont wrote a fabulous article for Foreign Affairs in the last 10 days on uh, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, on the future forward, given the shocks that we've seen in the Chinese system. Do you share with Dr. Economy this worry about the stability of, of, of President Xi's reign? No, I don't. I think she's overblown that, and I've felt that was the case um, before this crisis, and I, I certainly feel that's the case now. Certainly the Chinese leadership uh, did not necessarily uh, perform admirably during the early days of this uh, horrific uh, disease. And there's a, there's a lot of questions that are being raised both inside of China, especially outside of China, and looking back on that. But, you know, to, to view this as an existential uh, threat to mm-hmm. uh, his leadership and to the party uh, I think goes well beyond what is um, uh, actually accurate in, in the current situation. Professor, you say we should collaborate with China. According to our reporting, China 
is still concealing the cases and deaths and they're intentionally leaving those cases and the reporting of those cases incomplete. How can we collaborate with a country that intelligence officials in this country think we shouldn't trust? Well, that's a great question. And so, uh, you know, you got to look at, you know, what, what uh, uh, results are in terms of how the Chinese economy is uh, getting back to um, uh, at least production and what they're attempting to do on consumption. If the numbers were as poor as your reporting uh, suggests, then um, they would not have reopened Wuhan. They would not have made progress in uh, normalizing and bringing production back and the travel back uh, that they're doing right now. So certainly there's uh, uh, issues of accuracy down to the last decimal point. Uh, we have problems with that in our country as well because we don't have data on testing and the incidence of uh, the disease. And, you know, I just think we have to be careful in uh, uh, pointing fingers at others. It's, uh, it's like the pot calling the kettle black here. Stephen Roach, thank you so much. With Yale University, greatly appreciated uh, today. What we've tried to do here, not all the time, but throughout Bloomberg's surveillance, is to bring you the smartest, the best, the most informed that we can within the medical community. That's been someone like Dr. Benheim here, Dr. Benheim, I should say, rather, at Mount Sinai in radiology, Dr. Hotez at Baylor University, Stephen Riley, the great epidemiologist over at Imperial College in London. And now for the emergency room. She is Lauren Sauer. She is at the Johns Hopkins University and their medical system out of uh, their Bloomberg School of uh, uh, Public Health. And of course, we have to mention that Mr. Bloomberg, of course, is with Bloomberg LP and a great benefactor of his engineering school, Johns Hopkins. And with that said, Lauren Sauer is exceptionally competent in emergency medicine and on the doings of emergency rooms. Here is Lauren Sauer. I think the key is to actually not walk into the emergency room unless you're absolutely critically ill. Um, we want to keep people out of the emergency departments to make sure that the space is there for the patients who need this critical resource the most. You're going to see sick patients in the emergency department now. Um, a lot of emergency departments are separating patients <clears throat> using tents uh, to separate out COVID-likely patients and COVID-unlikely patients to reduce the risk of spread in waiting rooms and things like that. Lauren, we have seen in the last couple days the beginning of an understanding of this virus with the ebbs and the flows, and of course, all focused on the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. But for each and every virus patient, there seems to be a point where they get better and then they get worse as well. What have you learned with the Johns Hopkins uh, medical team about the ebb and flow of the virus, the day-to-day of this pathogen? One of the things we've seen about these patients is that they have to be watched really carefully. Um, their oxygen saturation can look like it's going to be fine and then go, uh, then really go off the rails. Um, we've seen these patients, uh, we, really, we really need to pay a close eye to them to make sure that they're at the right resource level for managing them. So trying not to move them out of the ICU into a step-down unit too early with the risk that they might get worse and then have to be moved back to the ICU. You want to avoid transferring patients as much as possible and reduce the number of transfers. Within our public health system, 
With a beleaguered New York, and yes, there's other geographies across this country that are just overwhelmed right now. It's a movement from the emergency room to a hospital bed, and then as the prime minister to an intensive care unit. Explain the differences of ICU. Explain the nuances there that we need to know. Sure. So when a patient's moved from the emergency department, depending on how sick they are, they may go to a, a regular floor bed or up to the ICU. And that ICU level of care is really important for these patients who may need mechanical ventilation um, or other higher level care. That mechanical ventilation piece is really important. So if someone can't <clears throat> breathe on their own and is going to need to be intubated and mechanically ventilated, um, which we've talked a lot about with these patients, um, you need that ICU level of care because the staffing is higher. So um, you have more nurse to patient, yeah. ra higher nurse to patient ratio, <clears throat> um, higher level of critical care doctors, and you have the respiratory therapist you need to met need to manage the ventilators, and you have the anesthesiologist there to manage the levels of medication that these patients require. Explain to us your view on this debate of the protection of nurses, the protection of doctors, and indeed of all of hospitals in America. It's a raging debate right now about getting protective gear in. Give us your perspective, please. We absolutely have to keep our medical staff, our frontline healthcare workers healthy because the patients are going to keep coming, whether the physicians and the nurses and the respiratory therapists and everyone else who keeps the hospital running is there and healthy or not. So the personal protective equipment, or we, we call it PPE, is critical to protecting these, these healthcare workers. We need the masks or the PAPRs, the personal air purifying devices, um, so that you can safely come and go from these patients' rooms. You can safely do the procedures you need to do to keep the patients uh, breathing. Uh, a lot of our procedures that we do for these respiratory patients generate aerosols or smart, small particles that um, have the virus in it. So the PPE is critical to keeping healthcare workers safe and, and the hospital running. Lauren Sauer with the Johns Hopkins University and their Bloomberg School of Public Health. Just an, Paul, I thought there was just an extraordinary, extraordinary time. Uh, interview. She's truly in the trenches. She's out of Boston University and, of course, Johns Hopkins uh, as well. And her whole career is focused on that room we hate to go in. You know, every yep. parent dreads it. We hate <laughs> exactly with, right. for all sorts of reasons. Right. We hate to go in emergency rooms and these people that spend their whole careers in them. I'm one block away here from Mount Sinai's acclaimed emergency room, and it's it's a science unto its own within hospitals. Yeah, it's a special calling, I think, for for those yes. types of uh, people, well Tom, and they and they really uh, are on the front lines here. And uh, you know, Dr. Sauer's commentary there at the end about the importance of PPE having the proper equipment to protect our healthcare providers, particularly on the front lines, uh, is really critical. Yeah. And that's something we've seen uh, called out by, you know, lots of uh, politicians and, and, and speakers, whether it's Andrew Cuomo talking about initially, we have to have the PPE uh, and we have to have ventilators. Yeah. And those are the two key issues we've heard from, uh, you know, leaders around the country, around the world, as they talk about the response to this from the healthcare system. Let me uh, uh, move this to oil, and this is extraordinary, folks. It's off the radar to a great many of us as we focus 
on this pandemic. We focus on this massive economic contraction. I read not one, not two, but three Bloomberg hydrocarbon articles today on Alberta, and it is a depression. Paul Sankey has been following this for years. He's with Mizuho. He is one of the best, best, best at taking the microeconomics of oil and dovetailing it into some vision of where oil and natural gas are heading. Paul Sankey joins us uh, this morning. Paul, I was flabbergasted by the financial price boosted by all that money betting on higher oil prices and rebound versus the physical price witnessing Western Canada oil plunging from 10 and $8 a barrel down under $5 a barrel. Are we actually going to be giving oil away for nothing? It's getting close. I mean, certainly Belarus, which doesn't, as you know, have a traditionally strong hand of cards when dealing with Russia. But there are reports that Belarus uh, offered $4 a barrel and, and, and the bid was hit by Russia. So, yeah, things are obviously extraordinarily low and uh, will remain that way because obviously the demand environment here is, is unlike anything I've <clears throat> ever seen times five. For tomorrow, OPEC Plus is meeting. They were talking about supply. Can they do enough on the supply side to offset this massive drop we've had in demand over the last several months? Obviously not in the short term, but I think the market's very focused on the level of inventory build, which uh, will follow, obviously, from from excess production over lack of demand. So the question is, um, you know, how long does the inventory overhang? And there's a risk which really Tom was referencing, which is that if you ultimately exceed storage capacity, which is within the parameters of the current market, that's when you could go negative on price. We've talked about this uh, since the OPEC meeting of early March, that if the cost of storage is above the price of a barrel, the price will be negative, and we've seen it with natural gas, as you know. We've seen it, actually, with Barkin crudes, further to what Tom was saying, uh, as recently as a couple of weeks ago. So the key question here is, is the extent to which... Uh, inventory overhang can be mitigated. It's not very bullish for the oil price because you then have spare capacity for production, but at least we don't have a total cataclysm in terms of, um, you know, just inability to manage this uh, black viscous, uh, you know, somewhat dangerous liquid. Uh, Paul, to that point, I think probably my favorite, my favorite story on the Bloomberg is about the cost to rent out super tankers in six months. It has surged to more than $70,000 a day from 30 to 40,000 a day earlier last month. And I'm wondering when did we reach that tipping point? Let's say there is a 10 million barrel per day production cut which some people are hoping for between Saudi Arabia and Russia. How long do we still have before we sort of tip the scales and and, and exceed capacity? Um, well, actually, there's a, further to that, there's an interesting development this week, which is that with the lack of need for pipelines in the U.S., uh, Philips 66, for example, is offering its new pipeline as a storage facility. So there's, you know, this is a very innovative, as you know, industry that can manage extreme situations. So there's a, a, we always thought that there would be a lot of different ways. Filling train cars is another one, but as you can imagine, and the old joke is they start swimming, filling swimming pools around Houston. But, um, you, you know, the, the fact is that uh, by, by June at the current rate, uh, assuming that New York is out of lockdown 28th of April, uh, you would still be... The, the Saudi oil is on the water, as you know, so that hits in May. Um, that May period is, is 
the one where you have the lowest refining utilization with the highest supply. And that's the point where you think that maybe we'll go over the top of the tanks. Uh, beyond that, hopefully, demand is snapping back. I, I think, you know, and I'm sure you guys have a stronger view than me, but I don't think you can keep the U.S. economy, <clears throat> New York economy, shut down much beyond the 28th. I'd add that Tom would be very interested by the combination here of OPEC Plus and then an emergency meeting of G20 energy ministers uh, on Good Friday uh, is also a, a very interesting moment mm. in global oil history. Well, Paul, let's talk about it. What do you expect the outcome of that meeting to actually be? And when the Russians start talking about U.S. participation, I think a question we've had on a program like this is what does U.S. participation in any cuts actually look like? Well, from the Russian point of view, less sanctions. <laughs> I think you can... Interesting. Yeah, I don't think it'll be explicitly, uh, you know, I don't think anyone's going to be dumb enough to link it directly to the outcome of the meeting. But I think in a few weeks' time, you might find... Uh, you know, things are a bit easier for Russians around the world. But um, in all seriousness, it's uh, it's obviously a very big deal. And it was described to me by your own truly excellent journalist, Javier Blas, was saying this is actually too big to fail. You know, Saudi's got so much on the line here. If you, obviously, it's enormously... Well, well, I was just going to say, it's enormously risky to bring together the G20 energy ministers at a time like now and not deliver on Good Friday. Exactly. Not deliver a big deal, you know. Well, let's help Javier Blas with his next story, Paul. We can all do that together here. What is your recommendation of the correct approach of the State Department and I guess our Energy Department in Washington in these two sets of talks? What is the most efficacious way for the U.S. to help the world out of this mess? Well, I think the optics, so they point to yesterday's short-term energy outlook published by the U.S. Department of Energy, and, and they've got production down, you know, a million, million and a half barrels a day this year. And say, there you go, that's the market, and we will be cutting, and that's good enough for Saudi, quite frankly. And then it becomes a question of, of Russia versus Saudi, which is another, you know, very interesting issue, which surrounds, A, the fact that Saudi is at surge levels, so they're at over 12 million. Are they cutting from there, or are they cutting from where they were before they surged? That's a problem for the, for the Russians. Yeah. The Russians are physically constrained, so they're going to have to cut anyway. So they're starting with a cut offer. But uh, the understanding is Russia's only down, I say only down about a million barrels a day. But also it doesn't have storage. You know, there's short storage, which Saudi is not. Additionally, technically, Saudi can just flick a switch. They've designed their system to be, uh, you know, they can just turn it off and there's no damage. Whereas if Russia cuts hard, that's going to damage their productive capacity, which is a key point. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a ton of things here. And then, of course, as you mentioned, Alberta is cutting a million. Uh, I think Brazil is struggling to sell its oil. So there's a lot of optical right. cuts that are market-driven where Saudi can well. say, okay, okay, okay. It's really just Russia versus Saudi that we're worried about. Yeah. Paul Sankey, thank you so much. Let Thanks, us know Paul. when a gallon of gas gets under a dollar a gallon. I'd like to know that as well. He is with uh, Mizuo. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.